love for you to continue those after the service. Uh, can, please do continue all your chatting downstairs. Join us for tea and coffee. If you weren't here earlier, remember there's only one service next week, 10.30 service. Just one service. Wonderful. Well, we've been looking over the last three weeks at uh, what church is. And I've really wanted to leave this with you as a legacy. This is what the last nine years have been about together. Uh, so it's a legacy here. And when I start in welcome in September, uh, these will be the three that I'll preach there to start with as, as a vision. So legacy here, hopefully, and vision there, God willing. So that's what we've been looking at. We looked at two weeks ago the idea that church is this place that points out Jesus. We stand like John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we looked at how Andrew did that and Peter did that and Nathaniel was, was met by Philip. We saw how this chain reaction of people pointing out Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God. We have found him. Messiah, come and see. And we said that's what we do. That's why church exists. To point out Jesus. To make him known. And then we looked last week at church as a place where we are conformed into Jesus' likeness. Where we are discipled and we are changed to become more like him. And that we do that as we fix our eyes on him, doing the things that he does, walking where he goes. This week, third week, we're looking at church as a place where we meet Jesus. The Bible is full of comments that talk about the church, the gathering of believers, as being the place where God is manifest, where God is. So Jesus says it a, a, a number of times. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. That's beautiful. God is here. Jesus, by his spirit, is here to come and touch and heal and hold and cleanse, rebuke, comfort, strengthen, energize. He is here to meet with us, to put his finger on sin and deal with it, heal it, wash it away. It's beautiful. He's here. Again, uh, we have other examples where Jesus says, look, where you are and your love... People will know that I'm there. So in John it says, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. God is manifest when we love one another. There really is nothing like church. There is nothing like it. This place where we come together with different backgrounds, different pasts, different excitements, different characters, different personalities. And we come together and we say, we are one. And we love one another. And that's beautiful. And the world sees our love and it should just drop its jaw. 
and say, they're of Jesus. They're of Jesus. Again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that when the church gathers and it's at worship, a stranger should be able to come in and hear words spoken from God's very throne that will reduce people to quivering heaps and bring them to their knees and in relief and joy cry out, surely the living God is amongst them. That is church. The place where we meet God. The place where the world can come to meet with God. And as we've done in each of these sermons, we're going to be looking at it through Peter's eyes. So we've turned to page 1090 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 21, verses 1 to 19. John 21, 1 to 19, page 1090. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias, Lake of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, that means twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. We'll just take a a pause right there. It's really interesting what's happened here. The boys have been told by Mary to go and meet Jesus in Galilee. And they've had two meetings with Jesus already. He's met with them one day, came through the locked rooms, uh, and Thomas Didymus, the twin, wasn't there. He came a week later, and Thomas was there. And now, third week perhaps, they are in the Sea of Galilee, doing exactly what Mary told them Jesus said they must do. Go to Galilee and meet Jesus. And here they are. And I find it quite amazing that most scholars question their motives. Here's a little selection of what some commentators and scholars, good scholars have said. That they are very divided of whether Peter and his friends are are to be blamed for going fishing. Listen to this. This is a fellow called Hoskins writing in the 60s. He describes the scene that I've just said of them saying, let's go fishing, as one of Complete apostasy. It's a little bit harsh, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, the f- and the fulfillment of um, them scattering like, like sh- uh, sheep without a shepherd. Here you go. Here's a, another one. Barrett, written in the 70s. He judges it unthinkable that Peter and his brother disciples should contemplate a return to their former occupation after the events of the resurrection. Another one, Raymond Brown, incredible scholar, he writes of aimless activity undertaken in desperation. You're getting a feeling of the weight of the scholars and the commentators. Even Don Carson, in his excellent uh, commentary on 
John writes this, this fishing expedition and the dialogue that ensues do not read like the lives of men on a spirit-empowered mission. Quite harsh. Their motives are, are being questioned by scholars thousands of years later. I, I joined Facebook about six weeks ago, and I, you know I'm pretty much enjoying it. Uh, and one of the things I enjoy most are the little pithy pictures from time to time that you get. I love finding out what people are doing, and I'm far more in the loop now than I ever was before about when people are having children or their birthdays and stuff. Quite amazing. Dillis Pugh sent me a great one. Try and imagine this in, in your head. It, it was of this giant chicken crossing the road. You know, we all know the joke, don't we? Why did the chicken cross the road? So here it is, this giant cr- chicken crossing the road. Uh, and the, the little pithy comment underneath was, was this. It says, I, I dream of living in a world where the chicken's motives aren't questioned. I like that. Because we are very quick to question people's motives. Very quick to judge. To point out. And say, look at you. You haven't run very well, have you? You haven't done that particularly well. And that's so harsh. And so unkind. Really painful when we do that. And sadly, church is known for that. Pointing out where other people fall trying to draw attention to other people's weaknesses, pointing it out in the complete opposite of Jesus saying, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And instead, church is known for pointing out and nitpicking and finding fault. It's heartbreaking. I think I, I, I'm quite emotional about it because I got an anonymous letter this week. Uh, and very painful they are. Don't ever send anonymous letters. It's just foul. It's not church. It's not the way it should be. Whatever you have to say, if you really believe it, have the courage to speak. To be truthful and do what Jesus said and speak to the person. And here we judge Peter. But you know what? Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is there on the shoreline. He's not judging them. He's not saying, oh, look how those strong men have stumbled. No, he's there, right there, where they are, walking along the beach. And we're told that last bit, and they caught nothing. Why? Because Jesus is zooming all the fish around. It's lovely. He's king of heaven and earth. And so the boat goes one way, and Jesus goes, fish this way. And then they go that way, and Jesus goes, fish this way. And he's keeping them, so they're dancing all around this lake all night, and they can't find a thing. Let's pick up the story. Okay. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. 
He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far away from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is so beautiful, the encouragement and the life that it brings. It is nourishment to our bones. It is life to our spirit. Father, we ask again that you would pour your Holy Spirit upon us and that you would speak to us individually, one by one, as a church too. That you would have your way amongst us. You would bring this to life in front of us that it would shape and mold us and change our thinking and change how we think about you, that we may be rooted and established in your truth and in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we are with Jesus there. He's been moving the fish around. Jesus is doing something very significant to these fellas who are fishing, whether for right or for wrong. They've got to eat. You know, let's cut them some slack. They've got to eat. 
So here they are fishing, and Jesus goes and meets them. And the first thing, going all old school today, got three C's. The first C's is the compassion of Jesus. We see the compassion of Jesus. Who makes the first move? And he's actually doing something very significant here. He is drawing their mind back to the first time they met him. The first time they met him, they'd been out fishing all night. This kind of bookends the story. It's an incredible thing. In, in John's gospel, we hear this sort of order in which the disciples came. There was Andrew and John. Well, they're there. Andrew probably is one of the unmentioned ones. John is a son of Zebedee. He's there. They tell Peter. Peter's there. Peter and then Philip find out. Philip then goes to tell Nathaniel. And Philip is most likely, most people agree, the other unnamed disciple. So here we have this beginning team, the, the fishermen. Nathaniel, who was under the tree and whom there was no guile, you remember? Here they are in a boat with Thomas, Didymus, the twin. Thomas, of course, we've seen just last week, not us, but in the Bible, because he was there and Jesus came to him. This doubter, this one who said, I won't believe unless. He put these conditions and this test on Jesus. He said, I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in the holes. And Jesus turns up a week later when, when Thomas is there. And he says, go on then, sunshine. Fill your boots. Go on. It's really me. And Thomas is there. This is kind of John drawing together all the streams and all the threads of John into this climactic ending. So here they are, familiar ground, out fishing, and just like in the beginning of the story, they've caught nothing. Because Jesus is doing his stuff. And then at sunrise, six o'clock in the morning, they spot this figure walking along the beach. They don't notice the smoke behind him of the barbecue he's been preparing. And this figure on the beach cries out to them. Just put your net down the other side. Friends. That's beautiful. If Barrett is right and they are committing apostasy, that's the way Jesus reacts. Hello, friends. Hello, friend. Put your net down the other side. Now, I'm not making this up. This is the Bible. This is how Jesus comes and meets sheep who are scattered. Sheep who don't know what to do. Sheep who are hungry and looking for food. This is our God, overbrimming with goodness, overflowing with good. That's why David says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. That's why the psalmist writes, his love endures forever. Our God is fundamentally and completely good. Taste 
and see that the Lord is good. That's what we're told. Our God is fundamentally good. In fact, if we were to try and define him in a word, we could do no better than John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, when he says, God is love. And so here he is, not judgmental, not having a poke, but drawing these fellas back to their original call to follow him. Friends, put your net over the right-hand side. Tired and weary, they do. And Jesus goes, fish, come. And there is this huge catch. I don't think 153 is at all significant, all you brethren folks, because I bet you've heard loads of great sermons about what the 153 is. You'll have to tell me one day. It's not. They're just saying there was a load of fish there. Huge load of fish filling the net. And supernaturally, the net didn't break this time. Jesus is saying, with me, there is life. With me, there is fruit. With me, there is more than you can possibly imagine. There is more than you can ask. That's me. The enemy comes to rob, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come that we might have life and have it in its fullness. And here they have life in their fullness. And suddenly it twigs. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, who loves to use that, that, that name about himself. We've learned a few bits about John, haven't we, over the last few weeks? Do you remember Easter Day, how we kept noticing how he said he was the fastest? Remember that? He was like, yeah, I got to the, the grave first. And Peter, uh, he was behind me. Uh, and then uh, Peter came in, and uh, he got there second, don't forget. He says it three times. He said, you know, he was slower. And he defines himself again and again as the disciple whom he loved. He was so sure of Jesus' love for him. He wasn't cocky. He wasn't arrogant. He just knew God was for him. Brothers and sisters, if only you could know that. God is for you. He is so for you that when you were far away, he sent his only son to die for you. God has not got it in for you. He loves you. He is for you. It's incredible. Incredible thing. And so John has captured that. And these eyes of love allow him to see Jesus at work. And he says, it's the Lord. And Peter being Peter, he thinks, I've I'm, I'm, I'm got to go and see him. And he gets dressed, I know, a little bit odd for us, because he's been, he's been fishing in, in, in the gym, it says, which is naked. So he's been, he's been fishing naked. He gets dressed to go swimming. The odd way to do things, all right? I suggest if we go fishing, wear clothes. If you go swimming, wear trunks. Not the other way around. It just looks odd. So he does that, and he goes for this swim with his outer clothing on. Doesn't care. hundred yards he swims, and he climbs up the beach, and he sees Jesus. 
It's lovely. The other fellas probably aren't too pleased with him because they're trying to row this boat back with all this fish. But it's not too far. And they come back. And when they all land, they see that Jesus has gone ahead of them and he's built a barbecue. He's got charcoal. And he's built a fire. And he's kind of doing a Jamie Oliver thing. He's got a grill out. Bish bash bosh. Got fish and bread. And he's cooking for them. Why did they go hungry? Why, sorry, why did they go fishing? Maybe they were bored. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they were hungry. Jesus comes and meets their need. He's got a barbecue going. I don't know what they did with the 153 fish. Maybe they put a few on there. And Jesus said, come on, bring, bring what you've got. We don't know, it doesn't say. But that's how I imagine Jesus doing it. He said, come on, bring it in. Let's put it on the barbie. And then this beautiful thing is told that Jesus goes and serves them. Again, he's calling their mind back to so many things. Not only does he draw their mind back to when they were first called, but he draws their mind back to the Last Supper. And he, he goes to them and he gives them bread. And he does the same with the fish. And it's incredibly intimate and it's incredibly personal. In fact, the word there in Greek is aristo, from which we get our word aristocrat. Jesus treats these men, ordinary men, out fishing, fallen men. Peter had denied him three times. He serves them and treats them like aristocrats. It's the most wonderful and beautiful thing, the compassion of Jesus. He makes the first move. He cooks them breakfast on the beach. He is intimate and personal, and he's going out of his way to be kind to them. That's how church should be. We should go out of our way to be kind. Even to those who don't deserve it. Because to tell you the truth, Peter doesn't deserve it. Peter has denied Jesus three times. It's a terrifying story. It's so poignant because Jesus is in this room with the high priest. And the high priest's guards are are smacking him about, saying, don't you know who you're talking to? And the high priest is saying, tell us, are you the Christ? And just yards away, just outside that complex, perhaps there's a window, just yards away is Peter, scared stiff, warming himself around a charcoal fire. Same kind of fire. And he's warming himself around it, looking at his saviour through the window. Scared stiff when a girl comes up to him, a serving girl, and she says, hold on a second, aren't you with him? She points. And Peter says, no, no, I, I know nothing about him. She says, I can tell from your accent, you're one of them. Oh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yet your debts, my apologies. <laughs> You are definitely one of them. 
I have nothing to do with him. The rooster crows and the tears stream. Are you the son of God? Yes, it's as you say. And you shall see the son of man on clouds descending. They rip their shirts. Jesus looks out the window. Peter's in tears. He denied his saviour three times. As he said he would. And Jesus in his compassion has gone out of his way to bring things together to remind Peter of the upper room where, Peter, where he told Peter, you're going to be sifted by Satan. To bring Peter's mind back to that first encounter when they were out fishing all night and they caught nothing. And now the fire, the compassion of Jesus should be the compassion of the church. This is what Ken Geyer writes. He says this, that Jesus hasn't instituted all of this to inflict pain. Jesus is there to relieve it. Jesus had seen the bitter tears when the rooster crowed. That was all he needed to see. That was repentance enough. Peter looks up, longing for the faintest glimmer of forgiveness. And in a language beyond words, in a language of love, it glows from the Savior's eyes. Feed my sheep, Peter. Jesus' way of saying, I still believe in you. I think, I still think you are the right man for the job. And with the words follow me, the restoration is complete. The painful memory is healed. And three and a half years ago, Jesus asked Peter to follow him. And the offer still stands despite Peter's failure. That's beautiful. The offer still stands despite our failure. Jesus had orchestrated everything to bring back two memories to Peter's mind. A precious memory, a painful one. The painful one brought back, not to rebuke Peter, but to restore him. He didn't want to make him grovel in the dirt. He didn't want to show him how right Jesus was and how wrong Peter was. He brought it to the surface for one purpose and one purpose only, to heal it. To heal it so Peter could go on loving him and serving him without that painful memory leaning over his shoulder the rest of his life, wagging an accusatory finger. It's beautiful. Jesus does not say to Peter, some friend you turned out to be. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, I'm really disappointed in you. You let me down. You're all talk. Coward. I was wrong about you. Call yourself a disciple. Are you man enough? Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Instead, he simply asks, Do you love me? Do you truly love me? I love that. When I returned from my illness, uh, I was meeting with Don every Thursday, which was beautiful. And on that th first Thursday that I met with Don, Aileen was there and she made me a cup of tea. 
Do you know what she said to me? She said, you're still the man. You're still the cooled man. That was two years ago. Some of the sweetest and most beautiful words I've ever heard. You're still the man. And Jesus says that to every one of us. He says, you're still the one I love. You're still the one I called. You're still my precious daughter, my precious son. So that brings us on to our second P, which is conversation with God. If a conversation with Eileen Nuttall, Aileen Nuttall can be beautiful, imagine what a conversation with God himself, with Jesus, can do. There's a real need for us, Mutley, to commune with God. We saw it two weeks ago. We said we can't adequately point out Jesus unless we are consumed by him. We saw it last week. We can't follow Jesus. We can't live the Jesus life unless our eyes are on him. When Peter took his eyes off, he bubbled under. And we can't be a place where people meet with Jesus unless we as a church are consumed by him, by a passion for him and a communing with him. Now I know we've got plenty of excuses why we don't spend time with Jesus. We're too busy, we're too tired or it's too boring. But we need to. Here's two ancient and wonderful men. This is William Wilberforce. He says this. In the calmness of the morning, before the mind is heated and wearied by the turmoil of the day, you have a season of unusual importance for communing with God and with God with yourself. William Wilberforce. Listen to this, Oswald Chambers. The battle is won in the secret place of the will before God, never first in the external world. Nothing has power over the person who has fought out the battle before God and won. Hustle Chambers. So we need to be communing with God, hearing his word. Laying down our life. Do not give up. If you have stopped, start. Commune, commune with God. Or commute with God. Do both. Commune with God. And then finally, the third C. The calling. Here's Peter with Jesus. Not the I told you so. Not the I let you down. Not the you're not the man. Instead, Jesus asks him, do you truly love me? Peter says, I, I love you. I know you have to go back to our series on John three or four years ago to really have an unpacking of that with the agape and the filio. But let's just look at it as it is today. Do you truly love me? He says, do you love me more than these? Jesus asked Peter, do you have supreme love? me that's the question he asks us do you have supreme love for me do you love me more than all these 
Jesus says, you have to love me more than your family, more than your children, more than your occupation, more than your possessions, more than your good name, more than your life. Do you love me? Muttley, as I prepare to leave you with a sad heart, I ask that you make and continue to make Jesus your supreme love. Let nothing else take that. Let nothing else rob you. Let Jesus be your all-consuming passion. Jesus asks him, do you love me? And each time Peter says, I love you, Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He says, I want you to serve. You demonstrate your love in service. And Jesus has been saying this throughout his ministry. If you go to the book of Matthew, or no, Mark, Mark 10, 45, the Son of God came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When they try and stop the children coming, Jesus says, no, let them come. Jesus washes their feet, all of them, all their feet, even Judas's, dries them clean with a towel. This servant-hearted love. So Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who in very nature God did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but poured himself out, became lowly, became a servant, took on the garments of a servant, was obedient even to death on a cross. That's how you should be. Muttley, not only are you to love Jesus with a passion, you are to serve one another with all your heart and strength. And finally, this love is sacrificial. It ends with Jesus speaking very intimately to Peter, saying, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He's telling him he's going to be crucified. Muttley, my beautiful church, love sacrificially. Love at cost. Love at cost to your good name. Love at cost to your resources. Love at cost. So what about us? Well, we need to be a church that looks like Jesus because we're his body, an incarnational church, a church that makes the first move, a church that goes out of its way when people are a long way off. We go and we make it easy. We stand at the shore and we welcome and we say, friend, some food here. There's warmth here. There's friendship here. As church, 
We're to be a church that is full of love and grace. Not pointing out how people stumble. Not pointing out how slow discipleship is. But a church that is full of love and grace. A place where the Bible is taught. And where the Bible speaks its word of truth. And where we help one another live the life that Jesus has called us to. And a church, above all, that is compassionate, that is kind. That's what we're to be. That's what we work for. That's what we've worked for. And you know what? For all of us, Jesus' grace is open to us. Not one of us has got this cracked. Not one of us in this room is perfect. And Jesus stands by the lake of our life. And he says, friends, there's a fire for you here. There's nourishment for you here. There's my welcome and restoration for you here. Come. Let's pray. Loving God, help us to love you as Peter did. To be zealous for you. Help us to feed your lambs. Take care of your sheep. And Father, help us to pay the price, whatever it is, to follow you to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.